What is it with young people these days? How many conversations have started with that question, that complaint? Just in sports, there's a clear generation gap when it comes to athletes in Gen Z. Those are the ones now in college and high school and very early in their pro careers. Their loyalty, toughness, resilience, and commitment to team are being loudly questioned by some folks in older generations. My guest is Dr. Kensa Gunter, an esteemed sports psychologist and one of the smartest people I've met when it comes to gaining a deeper understanding and appreciation for where young athletes are coming from, ways to reach and motivate them, and maybe melt away some misconceptions. Kensa's work with athletes from the Atlanta Falcons and Georgia Tech and organizations like the NBA and U.S. Olympic Committee. But Kenson's field of expertise is much wider than sports. We also talk about useful tools for all of us to improve mental wellness and ways to proactively treat our mental health. Well, Kenson, I am so excited about this conversation. I could geek out on the topics of psychology and sports, psychology of young people, areas you're an expert in. So I'm, I'm going to approach this with uh, genuine enthusiasm, but hoping to learn a lot from you today. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here. I am absolutely looking forward to this conversation. And like you, I could geek out on the same topics. And so I'm really hoping that the audience uh, gets something from this and is interested in what we have to discuss. No doubt. That's our job here. Let's talk about your work with younger people. I've seen you give amazing talks explaining concisely and beautifully what is inside the head of what has become known as Generation Z, kind of the post-millennials, born 97 or later, so roughly 24 years old or younger. And some of the things that confound people in my generation and in your generation, different generations, about this younger group is their unique way of looking at things. And in, in the world of sports, lots of older people complain about younger people because of mm -hmm. things they don't do, the ways that they don't think like we think. Right. What can you share with a group about you know, this generation, the characteristics in general, understanding that generations are generalities and there's a lot of diversity and complexity within a generation. What have you mm -hmm. found that are the common threads for folks who are in Gen Z? So, so the first thing I want to say is, is that when we think about generations and the uniqueness that exists in Generation Z, the uniqueness exists across all generations, right? So we think of it as a facet of diversity. And so when we look at this current generation, what we have to do is look at the context in which they were developing in their formative years, what was going on in the world around them, right? And so this is the generation that really, if you think about it, was, was raised in the time and if we think about sports, like the professionalization of youth sport, the era of the helicopter parents or the lawnmower parents, right? The idea of instant access to information. And so you have a generation who's used to those things being very commonplace in the world. And so this is a generation that really is interested in um, belonging. They're interested in meaning. They're interested in having opportunities to showcase their abilities. They're interested in connectedness, but with the era of social media and technology, they're also very interested in expressing their individuality. They're interested in understanding the why behind certain things, right? I mean, we live in the Google era where you can Google anything in five seconds. So they're interested in understanding the why, understand how they fit in the larger puzzle. puzzle. This is a generation that is more diverse culturally than any of our past generations. So they're very interested in, again, understanding and allowing space for unique differences. Um, but it's also a generation who may have had different experiences as it comes to learning how to manage frustration, learning how to deal with setbacks and disappointments, um, learning how to develop what previous generation might think of as some of those kind of automatic skills that you just get from, from moving through day to day. They may not have been uh, had the opportunity to develop those skills in the organic way that previous generations did. So we may need to teach a little bit more for this generation to help them understand some of those principles that may feel automatic and commonplace, again, to generations in the past. Yeah, as those things apply to attention span, you, you mentioned handling adversity uh, with patients, some of the things that, that have always taken time to learn. What does it speak to? the current situation in college athletics where the transfer portal exists and a couple thousand players are in the portal because they're seeking a new opportunity, a fresh start and, and choosing to 
when the time comes, maybe opt out of a bowl game because they want to preserve themselves for their own individual careers down the line, things that just rock the world of, of baby boomers and, and other generations. What, what does it say about this young group that, that they, they don't think like we want them to think all the time? Yeah, I think historically what we have thought of and what we have placed value in is this idea of loyalty and this idea of enduring, right? That was a common principle and theme that existed in the world of sport. Kind of you just, you sacrifice for the team, you endure, you suck it up, you you deal with whatever the circumstances may be in the situation that you're in. But again, what I think we're seeing with this generation is a desire for the values that they hold personally to match the values of the team in which they're on or the university in which they're attending. And I can really... What I've seen is a a connection between this and what I mentioned earlier, that professionalization of sport. If we think about the youth sport landscape right now, you have not only the school, the the teams that exist at the school, but you have community-based teams, you have travel teams. It really is um, a very intense and robust endeavor when you think about youth sport. You have different teams that may recruit kids from across town. It's not that you play in the on the team that's in your area. You may be recruited by a team across town to be the star, to have the opportunity to get the playing time. And so that's what kids are familiar with at a very young age. So the idea that they would take that mentality that I can go to a different team and be a star and get the opportunities that I want is something that just stays with them. It doesn't seem like a foreign concept to them in the way it seems like it is to us. But that has become commonplace if we think about the elite sport youth circuit that exists across multiple sports. Kids are recruited, kids are showcased as being stars at a very young age. And so I think it's not that we're seeing college kids do something different. College kids are doing what they're used to doing and they're they're just mirroring the experience that they've had in youth sport now at the collegiate level because they do want an opportunity. And they are thinking not only about the team success, but they are thinking about a brand and name and creating opportunities for themselves. I think that's a great point that is not often considered when we judge college athletes. This is all they've known, right? Since youth sports. So it doesn't seem like they're quitting on their team when they're seeking a different opportunity. They don't even view it that way. I think there is a concern by people who are trying to motivate and and coach this generation who are from a different generation that there Mm -hmm. is perhaps not enough concern for the name on the front of the jersey and concern only for the name on the back of the jersey. How do you see that? Yeah, I I totally think that um, what we have to understand is that there has been a movement and a shift for a while now, but definitely in the last few years to really emphasize and focus on the person of the athlete. I think historically in the world of sport, we've done a really good job of celebrating and acknowledging the performance and really honoring and elevating that while at sometimes not even really acknowledging or honoring the performer and the person that 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 executed that awesome performance. And so to your point, I think thinking about loyalty to team really speaks to the front of the jersey, but truly what you do see is this increased awareness and attentiveness to the name on the back, right? Because that's a person who is having a lived experience, regardless of what sport context they're in. And I really think when we think about teams, organizations, cultures, it's about how are you creating a system that allows that individual to thrive, right? I don't really think it's that kids want to transfer and go to different schools just because. I really think it is they want to be in environments where they feel like they are valued, respected, where they feel like they have an opportunity, where the work that they put in might an opportunity that they get on their field of play. And they really want to know that the, the team that they're a part of cares about them particularly given how much they are often sacrificing for the team. So yes, not only do we need to think about the name on the front, but we also need to be really mindful of um, and express care and concern for the name on the back as well. You work with NFL teams, NBA teams, the Olympic committee will get to all those things, but you use the word culture. And so often it's, well, does this player, this person fit into our culture and shouldn't Mm -hmm. they sublimate some of their own personality traits to fit into this culture because the collective is everything? That's not necessarily the way a lot of younger athletes view it, is it? Well, I think the assumption is, is that just because we share colors in a jersey that we have a culture, right? I think a lot of teams make that mistake and think just because we're all under this umbrella, that means that a culture is automatically created. And really culture is reflected in your actions, right? It's reflected in what you value. It's reflected in how you 
treat one another, whether we're talking coaches to coach, coach to athlete, athletes to athlete, like culture has to be created. And I think one of the things that we really have to be conscious of and really, really have to ask ourselves is what is the culture we're creating, right? Certainly everybody in competitive sport wants a culture of winning, but what else is embedded in this culture? Do we have an environment or are we cultivating an environment that allows for folks to come in with the strengths that they have, also with the weaknesses that they have, and can we create an environment that helps them to grow and thrive and fail and make mistakes and learn and still come together for this common purpose and this common goal? It's not that everyone has to be the same on the team, right? We just need to create space for everybody to contribute. I think of it as a puzzle, right? And if you think of a team and everybody on that team represents a unique piece of the puzzle, all the puzzle pieces aren't the same, but we need them all in order to have a complete picture. And so what I think you see is, again, you see individuals and wanting to be a part of a system that values them, right? They want it to be a two-way street. They don't want to be the only ones showing commitment, dedication, heart, and passion to the team, they want the team to actually show some of that back to them too. Yeah, and being valued takes different forms from making money, sharing in the amazing revenues of college athletics through NIL dollars. They see their coaches being paid $10 million and more, breaking Mm -hmm. contracts, going places uh, in the middle of a contract for greener pastures and and wonder why, why they shouldn't sharing that as well. You know, coaching this generation, Kansa, has been a puzzle. These athletes we're talking about in this age group are are coached, some of them by boomers born Mm -hmm. before 65, Generation X, coaches in their 40s and 50s. And now there's, you've got millennials, folks born between 81 and 96, you know, 40 Mm -hmm. and younger. There are millennials coaching in the NFL, the NBA. So that's just, you know, one generation removed. But what are the challenges that are maybe different from other generations in trying to motivate and reach Gen Z? You know, I think the bottom line is this. What we have to understand is that regardless of um, the generation that someone identifies with, um, we really have to focus on developing relationships with folks. And we really have to focus on understanding them. Right. There's a quote that says people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so I think the real issue and the, the not real issue, the real opportunity. Let me say it like that. The real opportunity exists in asking ourselves the question, what are we going to do to try to understand these young athletes that we're working with? And what are we going to do to try to reach them? And we can't just place that responsibility on the athletes to make all the adjustment. It may mean that me as a coach or me as a therapist, right, who who identifies in Generation Z, I mean, Generation X, I'm sorry, me as a therapist who's in Generation X, I may have to adopt my style to meet the person that's sitting in front of me. Right. I think smart coaches do that, that. but they worry you can't coach this generation hard because if I raise my voice, if I'm not, you know, consciously supportive and nurturing, they're out the door like tomorrow to the other program. That's what older coaches worry about with this this current generation. And again, I would say that I don't think that it's that this generation can't take criticism or can't take hard coaching. Um, But I do think we have to be conscious that 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 has to be balanced right? With praise. There's nothing wrong with constructive criticism, but nobody only thrives in an environment where they're only hearing about the criticism and hearing about the things that they're doing wrong. So we have to be conscious of balancing that with positive feedback, with instructive feedback, balancing that with praise when they do something well. I know sometimes in sport, there's this idea of, well, if I tell them that they're doing something right, they won't be motivated. That's, that's That's a myth, in fact, right? And so I don't think it's that this generation can't handle the toughness. What I do think is that this generation in some ways wants to understand the purpose for the toughness. There needs to be a purpose for the toughness, but beyond that, it needs to be balanced. And if you have a relationship with someone, then offering that constructive feedback and that criticism feels like just that, feedback and criticism as opposed to a personal attack. There's an article that recently came out about the Los Angeles Rams and they talk about how there are some principles of positive psychology that were integrated into their system, their organization, and how it contributed to the feel within their team, a feel of respect. They said there was no yelling. Coaches didn't yell. People had conversations. They talked to one another. They were able to give feedback, but they were also able to come together and work toward a common goal that resulted in them winning the Super Bowl. And so I think, again, we have to shift that idea that tough love, tough coaching, 
hard coaching is the only way to reach folks and understand in the context of a relationship, you can give that constructive feedback, but it has to be balanced with respect and it has to be balanced with education so that folks can learn and not just feel attacked. Rams, of course, coached by Sean McVay, who's a millennial. He's just 36 years old, a brilliant guy and has a very young orientation to the staff. You, you talked about you know, working with NBA and NFL players, you know, John Morant is in this generation. Um, Jamar Chase and, and Justin Herbert in the NFL are are t- under 25 years old. You've got maybe 15 guys in the NBA who began this season as teenagers. Joshua mm-hmm. Primo for the Spurs is having a good rookie season, just turned 19. In your work with pro athletes who are very young, what what is the dynamic there that's, that's different about college where for generations – None of the power was in the hands of the college players in pro mm-hmm. sports. It's different. I mean, certainly in the world of pro sports, it's, it's a different uh, experience than being in collegiate sport. There may be some overlaps as it relates to just being in the world of elite sport. When you think about athletic identity, the public nature of their lives and how they are um, constantly living their life in the public eye, right? Like that, those things are um, certainly commonplace when we think about the transition from college to professional sports, because the difference, one of the biggest differences is pro sports is a business, right? Whereas collegiate sport exists in the context of an academic institution. And so I think when you think about these young athletes who are coming in, it really is about helping them make that transition from college to this world of pro sport and understanding what that means, right? It's a it's a steep learning curve, but the idea of still performing at an elite level, right? Because that's what they're expected to do. But managing some of the other transitions, the length of the schedule, the diversity that exists within the organization as we're talking about generational diversity and how to navigate that space. Um, thinking about how to manage their personal lives with this new professional life, right? And still perform thinking about managing family relationships, romantic relationships, um, relationships with new teammates, relationships with new coaches. It really is providing them support as they navigate the newness of this professional sport landscape. That's, That's really what we try to do. And that may look different. For every individual, right? Because that's why experts what? like you are hired because you just you outlined a lot of complex stuff. That's life. It's sports. It's the explosion of of fame for many of them, wealth that's beyond their imagination, and the mm-hmm. and the complications that surround that. Besides what you just outlined, what are some of the other challenges that that athletes of that generation have expressed to you who are already um, in the professional ranks? I mean, I think one of the things that people might not think about sometimes is the loneliness that may come with making the transition Um, in the world of collegiate sport. Your schedule is made for you and you're constantly around your teammates, if not other athletes in the department. But when you make the transition to pro sport, again, you're around your team when you're practicing, when you're traveling, when you're playing games. But there is a lot of downtime. And so trying to learn about what is it that I want to do in my downtime? How do I want to spend this downtime in a way that allows me to continue developing my identity outside of my sport, but also allows me to engage in a routine that allows me to show up and perform when I need to, right? So it's that balance of how do I become a professional, right? How do I um, take a different kind of charge over managing my time, managing my energy, engaging in the things that I need to do to do my job well, while also potentially exploring other areas of my life that I may not have had time to explore before. And sometimes there can be a loneliness and a real uncertainty around thinking about who am I outside of basketball, right? But that's something that we really mentioned early in the process, because for all of these athletes, at some point, their sport will end, right? There will be a career transition out. um, And we want people to understand the sport is what you do, right? And for many, it's a large part of their identity, but it's not your whole identity. So really just making that adjustment and, and expanding the view that they may have of themselves. You mentioned loneliness. That's interesting. Not from yourself and professionals, but from the public, there may be a limited appetite for people to express problems because you have defied incredible odds by making professional sports. I mean, you're literally one in a million. Um, You're living the dream that so many people have and, and have, you know, riches beyond your wildest imagination. And yet, you're lonely and people don't necessarily want to acknowledge that those problems are real and significant. 
Yeah, I think sometimes people have this idea that being in the public sphere or having access to financial resources eliminates uh, any stress and eliminates the reality of you experiencing any kind of struggle, strife, or distress in your life, right? And I think the reality is, is that that's, that's not the case. These are people. Yes, they are extraordinary in what they do in their field of play. Extraordinary. But they are people first. And being in sport does not absolve people from some of the ills and the struggles and the stresses that happen for any of us as we're trying to navigate life. And so I know for some it's like, but they have access to so much but they also have some unique pressures. And again, like I said, they're people first. So they're also trying to navigate relationships, understand who they are, like I said, develop their identity. And they're also trying to perform consistently at a high level on a public stage where it has real implications um, for their career, for their ability to potentially provide for their family, real implications that, that they have to be mindful of and that are constantly top of mind. And so there are some, there are some great opportunities but again, the opportunities don't erase the fact that as people, they still deal with some challenges too. You're a proud graduate of the University of Georgia. You're drinking from a mug that says dogs on it. And the dogs <laughs> sit atop the college football world after conquering Alabama finally. We talked about this uh, uh, about a week or so ago. The collective psychology of sport fascinates me. I cover team sports and individual mm -hmm. sports like tennis, but let's focus on the team aspect and the SEC mythology, part of the mythology of Georgia, it, it acknowledged by their fans is that Alabama was the nemesis. Alabama was the ogre that stood in the way that constantly denied them their dreams and stepped on their heart. And, you know, I was at the SEC championship game mm -hmm. in Atlanta, and I thought Georgia was the better team. They had the lead. Alabama came back and overwhelmed them. So they rematched for a championship. And that was a big question, Kensa. Is Alabama in Georgia heads? Is Nick Saban in the head of Kirby Smart? Of course, Saban was his mentor and, and taught him a lot of what he knows about coaching. What, what's your thought about that aspect of, of team sports and the collective psychology that has to be overcome sometimes to reach your goals? I mean, certainly when you are participating in a team sport, it, the, the success of the team depends upon the ability of the individuals to come together, right? And to be in sync in order to achieve whatever it is that you're setting out to achieve. And so certainly there has to be a synergy that exists amongst the team. But also, um, the, again, the reality is if, if you are playing an opponent and you play them repeatedly, right, and you have success sometimes, but you have you don't have success at other times, that also gets in your head. I mean, we think about any competitive athletes. If I ask athletes generally what what runs in your mind the most, most competitive athletes will think about the times where they did not achieve the goal they set out to achieve. So in that case, I would say it's not so much the other team is in their head, but we tend to recycle the thoughts about our mistakes and our disappointments and the opportunities or the moments where we think we failed. And that can stick with us and that can impact our ability to show up in the moment. I think what has to happen in those moments is trusting your preparation, understanding and learning from those moments where you might not have accomplished your goal and trusting that this opportunity represents a new opportunity. I think sometimes what can happen is athletes can think that if a pattern is started where we're not winning and not beating this opponent, that's going to be the pattern forever. But I think what, what really has to shift is understanding each competition represents a new opportunity. And I think Georgia really embodied that this year and represent in, in realizing each opportunity, each time we step on the field represents a new opportunity. And yes, if we allow any other team to get in our head, that's going to hinder our performance. What we need to do is trust our preparation, trust what we know we're capable of doing, focus on our plan. And that's what gives us an opportunity to perform at our best. If you're thinking about other people, that gets in the way of you doing what you need to do. And so I will say go dogs, um, because I, I have to say that. <laughs> but I think about that collective identity, too, and that people really, in terms of fans, people get invested in their team. They're, um, they're the, they are alumni of the school. Athens is also my hometown. So I feel like I'm doubly uh, supportive of Georgia, but it really is, you know, this opportunity to rally behind a team that we identify with and to see them overcome, right, odds and to see them push through what has previously appeared to be a boundary. Like it, we all celebrate in that and we all in some ways kind of sharing that accomplishment, although we didn't play one minute on the field, there's a collective feeling of pride 
when you're invested and you identify with the team who you see reach such a pinnacle in their performance. Right. That's well put. I mean, Georgia players this year were certainly not or shouldn't have been too burdened by the fact that it had been 42 years since the school won a national championship. And meanwhile, Georgia had seen rivals like Florida win a few, Alabama win a bunch, LSU, Auburn, Tennessee. In the interim, since their last championship in 1980, that was a big backdrop for that game. You, ho- you hope sure. it wouldn't get in the hair players' heads. It was certainly in the fans' heads. I mean, Georgia right. fans were weeping and drinking and just celebrating. It was quite a unique experience to be a be just a broadcaster on the periphery of that as an outsider to watch that that relief and that joy when finally you know Georgia got it done. Absolutely, and I think the other reality is is it, everybody that's out there playing is good. Like we're talking about the best of the best, right? And it is difficult to show up and and excel day after day, week after week. Like that takes commitment and sacrifice and dedication. And really, you can think of it being who is the team that performs best in this moment, right? Because they're both still excellent teams. Georgia prevailed in the national championship. Again, we're thankful for that. But again, we're talking about the best of the best competing day in and day out. And that takes a lot of hard work, sacrifice, effort. It is hard to show up and be elite week after week, year after year. Um, And that's where I say you have to trust your preparation and really focusing on the consistency that's required to endure throughout a season, whatever season we're talking about. That's important, too. And so um, I'm glad we got it done. And I also understand that the same level of work and effort and preparation will be needed next year in order for us to be in a position to try to get it done again. Right. And that's that, too, is a piece of the elite athlete experience is it's the consistent um, excellence that really is something that has to be sustained and really um, is important when we think about these championships and just winning in general. You have the tools to understand what's going on, but I'm sure as a fan, you were nervous. You're wondering, I, I, are we going to get this done? Are we going to blow this? <laughs> as, a fan, <laughs> as a fan, you want it, you want it, you want it to happen so much. And then again, like you said, the joy and the relief, once it does happen, you you just kind of revel in that until next season. <laughs> you talked about the tools. Uh, I'd like you to, to explain more of the tools that you've used in, in your professional life to help people if not silence the inner voice, but maybe hit it on mute when, when the doubts come back up and the here we go again, and this is a repeating pattern and, and all those things that can get in the way of performance, including the connection to the result and, and what's at stake in the moment. What point you could tell people, because it's not just about athletics, it's just about living your everyday life when those, those inner voices come in and intrude. Absolutely. So what you're talking about now is, is our concepts that live in the field of applied sports psychology. Right. And and when we think about sports psychology, it really is thinking about the way in which we teach skills and and implement strategies to help elevate somebody's mental performance. You know, in the same way that we think about our physical performance in the way in which we might lift weights or engage in cardio training or, or pay attention to our nutrition in order to make sure that our physical health is maintained. We also can do things to maintain, elevate Um, and enhance our mental and emotional uh, muscles as well, if you will. And so within the field of sports psychology, we think about goals, right? What are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to accomplish? And what are the markers that we have for for determining whether or not we're meeting our goals or whether or not we need to adjust our process in order to meet our goals? As you talk about the attention and the, the, the focus on results, we really stress the importance of focusing on the process. Right. If I think about I'd like to speak in the form of analogies. And if I think about an analogy of standing at the bottom of a staircase and wanting to get to the top, me thinking about being at the top is not going to help me get there. What I have to focus on is the process of taking one step at a time. Right. So that's the notion of focusing on process versus outcome. But we also talk about things like motivation and internal motivation. We talk about self-talk, how you can quiet the doubt, but also how you can enhance your internal cheerleader or advocate, if you will, right? To have your self-talk be something that provides encouragement, direction, guidance, as opposed to something that's just a loud internal critic. Some of the other skills that we use and focus on are mindfulness to help people stay focused in the present moment. Um, You can't change the past. You can't predict the the future. Your power really lives in the present moment. And we also talk and, and teach skills of visualization and imagery. If you can see the image of your mind, it increases the likelihood of you being to execute it in real life. And then certainly team dynamics in terms of communication, working together for a common goal and purpose. 
understanding role clarity. These are some of the topics that we talk about within the field of sports psych to help enhance individual mental performance and also team mental performance as well. And if athletes are lucky enough and work hard enough and the stars align, they get to championship events. And we love championship events because of what is at stake, you know, what's on the line and, and what's gone into it. And, you know, I don't know if you're an Eminem fan, but, you know, Eminem talks about you better lose yourself in the moment, own it, never let it go. You get one chance, opportunity in a lifetime. I, I guess it's tricky for an athlete to, to think about that kind of thing, even if it's true. We've seen some of the biggest fighters, most mentally toughest players in tennis, people like Serena Williams and Novak Djokovic have a chance at a calendar grand slam. And on those occasions, as accomplished as they were, they were not themselves in those moments. They could not elevate their performance to even a normal level. It's quite subpar just because they allowed that pressure to kind of consume them seemingly. I think it's, it's important for us to understand that success is not a straight line that, that points upward, right? So the idea of losing matches or losing games, the idea of failing in some capacity, that too is a part of the process of sport. And it's also a part of um, one success journey, right? You can learn things from those moments. And I do, there are moments where you may show up and you just don't have your A game. Again, that goes back to the idea that we're not talking about robots, we're talking about people, right? And there are many different things that might influence how they show up on any given day. That doesn't take away from their excellence. It actually just highlights their humanity, right? But I think if we think about uh, Serena Williams, if we think about um, uh, Novak Djokovic, if we think about these athletes and these teams that consistently demonstrate excellence, it's not that they're perfect, right? But it's more often than not, and more often than most, they are able to show up and, and produce that A game. And, and I think one of the things that contributes to that is uh, another thing we talk about in the field of sports psychology is routines and coming up with your pre-competition routine and coming up with your game plan and your strategy and even having a post-competition routine. Because what that routine does is it creates feelings of consistency. It allows you to establish a habit. It allows you to have some level of control over how you show up rather than just leaving that to chance. You have no control over who's on the other side of the net, the field, the court, right? Like you don't control your opponents, but you can always control how you show up. And so what we really try to do is create opportunities for athletes to understand what is it that I need to do in order to give myself the chance to show up and be my best? And how can I create a routine that consistently allows me to do that and then do it, right? So it's not about um, anything that has to do with the opponents or the other people is really about creating consistency with them. But then also understanding there is somebody on the other side who's also trying to beat you and also trying to win. And they're also trying to show up and be their best. And some days there's other people that are better than you. And that's OK. That's a part of the process. And so um, I don't think it's that, you know, they crumble under the pressure per se. Uh, it may be that they didn't have their A game, or maybe there is something that got in the way of them being their best. But again, I don't think that takes away from their excellence. It just highlights their humanity. And and what great athletes do is learn from those moments and bounce back. Beautifully put. I, the, the concept of pressure just fascinates me because it's been defined in many ways. Billie Jean King, pressure is a privilege. In that context, she means you've earned the right to play in big matches that carry the pressure. But mm -hmm. pressure is also seen as a burden by some could be seen by an inspiration. Some people feel that pressure is programmed. In other words, it's mm. external. It's from outside forces and it doesn't come from within. How do you coach athletes to sort of manage it? Acknowledging that it's going to be felt it's going to be there. It's not as simple as say, push it away and say, I'm focusing on the process and the result doesn't matter because we're all human, right? Absolutely. And, and when someone has invested um, so much time and energy and, and sometimes money into being excellent in a particular sport, they're invested, right? They're invested in the outcome. And so that idea that they feel some level of angst, anxiety, pressure around wanting to do well, well, that makes sense, 
because that's why you're here and you're invested in doing that. And I, I think when you, your question is, how do we kind of coach athletes around managing that? The first thing is to try to understand that athletes understanding of where that pressure is coming from. Because like you said, that may be different for different athletes. There may be some who feel the pressure internally to perform well. There may be others who feel pressure from external sources to perform well. And so really trying to understand where is, are those feelings of pressure coming from for them? And then identifying interventions that allow them to decrease the feeling of pressure and increase the feelings of trust and to increase their feeling and their confidence and their ability to show up and execute their game plan. So it really goes back to rather than focusing on the pressure and the potential, the potential outcomes, trying to help them control what's within their control, right? How they show up, how they execute, how they, how they stay calm and poised in moments where things may not be going their way, but how they stay calm and poised in moments where are going, things are going their ways as well. And so it's really about, again, helping the athlete control their internal experience as a way of allowing them to show up and perform in the way that they want to, when they need to win, when they're competing. You pointed out earlier, teams are just collections of individuals, but it's the individual sports where that concept of pressure and the inner voice just fascinates me, whether it's tennis or golf or Olympic sports. It can mm -hmm. feel very lonely when you don't have the support of a traditional team, people that you've got plenty of sweat equity with. You've come through adversity together. You're just out there by yourself. And you've done work with the USOC in trying to address the issues of mental health for Olympic athletes where the pressure is unique, right, Kensa? Because it comes around once every four years. Yes, there's other competitions, but in many cases, your legacy, your ability to... to make a living off of your sport it depends on how you perform on this Olympic stage when it might be 10 seconds, it might be mm -hmm. four minutes of your life that will define that and to just tune everything out and be at your best. What a remarkable challenge that is. And that's why it's amazing when we see athletes come through in those moments on the Olympic stage. It's incredibly remarkable when we think about those athletes who who are within the USOPC. And again, like you said, the the frequency of their opportunity is less than it is for some of our, our other professional sports that exist here in the United States. Right. Like you said, the Olympics happens every four years. And so you're training and sacrificing for years to get to this one moment. And the idea that that doesn't feel pressure filled or the idea that there's not some intense feeling around that. I mean, of course there is, right? How could there not be? But again, the goal is the same. It's to help athletes kind of manage those emotions, acknowledge what the moment is, but then manage the emotion and the feeling of it so that they can still perform even on that grand of a stage, right? And that's what makes the athletes so exceptional when we think about their performance. They are excelling and executing on the grandest of stages. Um, and that takes a lot of dedication, will, preparation, practice, um, and, and mental fortitude, quite frankly, to be able to do that. For the individual athletes, they may not have a team around them, but many of them do have training groups that they work with. They have coaches and others in their performance team or staff who serve as kind of that team that supports them. But it's, it's nothing short of extraordinary what they're able to do, um, like I said, on the grandest of stages. Yeah, you strike out three times in baseball, there's a game tomorrow. If you throw three interceptions, there's a game next weekend. Mm -hmm. And and in many sports, you can make plenty of blunders and then recover, and the final score makes everybody forget that stuff. In these, some of these Olympic sports, you, you look at the figure skating, you know, one fall and you're finished, right? You have no chance to reach the top of the podium and maybe not get any kind of a medal. It, you know, obviously, you, you talk about the tools to be ready for that when someone doesn't come through in those moments and they end up in a, in a chair across from you and they, they feel like they have blown that chance. Yeah, it absolutely can feel devastating, right? I don't want to ignore that part of it. It can be devastating when you've practiced and tried. You've waited your whole life, quite literally, for this moment. 
and then feel as though you did not rise to the occasion. That can be devastating. And there can be feelings of grief. There can be feelings of loss. There can be feelings of shame associated with that. Um, there can be a lot of pain wrapped up in that, particularly um, if we also add in the factor of athletic identity and thinking about how much of a person's individual identity is connected to their performance. And we see that a lot in athletes who started participating in their sport at a very young age, like who they are as a person is very much so tied to who they are as an athlete. And so if they perform well, they feel good about themselves. If they don't perform well, they may not feel good about themselves. It's really that direct of a correlation. And so, um, yes, we try to help athletes. Do you try to change that? Them. Do you try to change that 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 mindset that your your self identity is wrapped up in in the result of a game? Is it is it a losing battle? Is it challenging to do that? Oh, I don't think it's a losing battle at all. I certainly think it's something that we need to attend to and continue to talk about. But it is it's a very it can be a very strong connection if you think about a person. If if through the context of your sport is where you get praise validation, acceptance. It's where you feel confident. It's where you feel capable. It's where many of your opportunities come from, whether it's scholarships or financial opportunities. You can understand why for many of athletes who, again, start at a young age or have a lot of success where who they are as a person really can get wrapped up in there. So we do work um, within, within our field to help people understand that dynamic and explore who they are beyond sport. And I think things that we've seen in the last couple of years is we've seen athletes, very elite athletes, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, Michael Phelps. We've seen them come out and talk about the mental health aspect of their experience, right? They talked about their mental health journeys. And it's not that navigating and dealing with mental health concerns and challenges got in the way of them being successful. But what we understand is that these very elite athletes are elite, not because they don't experience challenges, but because they've learned how to navigate them. And them courageously sharing their stories, I think has helped us to see exactly what you said, that there's there's another side to this as well. And certainly we can elevate the performance, but in doing that, we don't need to dehumanize and ignore the human because there is a person that's that's in there and that we need to actually focus on and care about. So as we think about athletic identity, as we think about the realities of anxiety, depression, other mental health concerns that may come with the pressure of being an elite sport, we really have to think about that. And I think athletes are asking and demanding that we see them as people first and not just performers. Absolutely. I mean, mental health and sports are front and center. What distinction can say, if any, do you draw between mental health as it's defined by coping with pressure, coping with failure versus maybe what would be defined as more profound mental health issues that require prolonged, significant therapy. So you, you listed some athletes. Obviously, mm -hmm. it's difficult to group them together because some have talked about being in very, very dark places and, mm -hmm. and having profound problems they had to navigate through that were connected to sport but not entirely wrapped up in sport, whereas some athletes say that their mental health issues come from what we're talking about in, in, in their realm. Yeah, and I think that that gray area and that blurred line that you're referencing really speaks to um, a misunderstanding in terms of definitions and what mental health is in our society, particularly here within the United States. When we say the term mental health, we often think about mental illness. We often think about the adversity, the stress, um, the challenges, maybe the diagnosable conditions. But truly, by definition, mental health is a state of well-being in which we're able to reach our potential, connect with others, work productively and contribute to society. The World Health Organization has defined it in that way. So I like to expand that definition and say within the umbrella of mental health, we have mental illness and we also have mental wellness. And so mental illness is a very real um, describes, mental illness describes very real conditions that might require professional help, whether it be counseling and therapy or whether it's medication. And so mental illness refers to medical conditions that create a disruption in the way we think, the way we feel, and potentially the way we behave. So when we think about diagnosable conditions such as depression, anxiety, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, obsessive compulsive disorders, and there are a host of other conditions that are diagnosable, we absolutely need to be mindful of providing um, competent um, resources to help address those concerns. But also if we think about, again, the other part of the continuum of mental health, we can think about mental wellness, right? And how we are proactively 
taking care of our health. And at any point in time, yes, the individual, organizational, or societal factors that can impact our mental health. I think we all can agree that the last two years have been challenging in different ways because of the global pandemic. And many people have reported feeling that their mental health has been impacted as a result of dealing with the ongoing uncertainty, change, and transition that we've been living in because of this pandemic. It may not be that those individuals who say their mental health is impacted are feeling or now have diagnosable mental health conditions, but it certainly can impact the way you feel, think, and behave. And so feeling depressive symptoms or feeling anxiety symptoms or feeling decreased motivation um, or increased concern about what's coming, certainly that can translate to an impact on your mental health without being a diagnosable condition. So mental health, a state of well-being. Mental illness refers to diagnosable conditions that impact the way we think, feel, and behave. Mental wellness refers to how we're proactively engaging in behaviors and activities to maintain and elevate our mental health. I love your way of concisely, clearly expressing <laughs> these. I really do. I don't. I mean, that, that's just perfectly, perfectly expressed. I mean, I think it's powerful to talk about proactive mental mm-hmm. health, and and aside from. Awareness, self-awareness, getting to know ourselves, understanding how to listen to our our inner voice. What can be important tools to have to proactively take care of ourselves and others around us before it gets to the the, the category of of mental illness? Right. So um, again, I, I like to draw a parallel here between mental health and physical health because sometimes it's easier for us to think about the ways in which we take care of ourselves physically. Um, if we think about again exercise, nutrition, staying hydrated, um, all those things that we might do to take care of ourselves physically, taking vitamins, right? Whatever we may do to take care of ourselves physically, think about similar activities that could help you to maintain and manage your mental health as well. So some of the common um, mental health wellness strategies that I share with folks are, are, some of them are similar. So exercise, Certainly exercising and moving has benefits not only to our physical health, but also to our mental health. It helps to release endorphins, which can boost our mood. Simply moving and accomplishing some kind of physical task can help increase our confidence as well. Sleep is another. We underestimate the value of sleep, but sleep really is when we allow our bodies, including our minds, to recharge and to reset um, and to kind of flush off the toxins of the day so that we can be ready to perform and function on the following day. So exercise, sleep, social support, extremely important. And it doesn't, it's not about the quantity of people in your social support system, but it is the quality. Being around people who are positive influences, who encourage and support you, being around people who I like to say, fill your bucket, fill your wellness cup, who it makes you feel good to be around them is important. One of the things that's come out of the pandemic is understanding the impacts of loneliness and isolation, which can really have some detrimental health effects and health effects. And so really being conscious of connecting with a social support system that's positive, good for our mental health. The other two that I'll mention, gratitude. It sounds kind of strange, but the idea of being able to identify what it is that you are thankful for. Um, and, And even in, again, the moment that we're in where it may be hard sometimes to look beyond the challenges, even in moments of challenges, there are things that remain unchanged and things that we can be grateful for. And if we take a moment to intentionally identify those things, it can have a boost to our, our mental health um, and our feelings of wellness. And then finally, mindfulness. I think there's been a mindfulness boom over the last few years. There are several apps that exist that can help in teaching and, and teaching the principles of mindfulness and helping one to engage in the practice. But what mindfulness really is about is paying attention to the present moment. And I like to say being where your feet are, having your mind to be where your feet are. And it really is a powerful tool that allows us to monitor our emotions, regulate ourselves internally. It can help to boost feelings of calm, confidence, can help boost our esteem, um, and can help us really um, approach situations from the standpoint of um, what can I control? How can I adjust in this moment as opposed to trying to uh, or just focusing on the challenges that may exist. Well, thank you for bringing up mindfulness and gratitude. Two of my favorite <laughs> topics. I begin every day with gratitude, and I think it's great advice that you gave there. If you do that, 
it's a great place to start the day because it's it, a great place it, to it start. provides perspective and sometimes perspective is needed when, when adversity hits and, and, and times seem pretty gloomy. Is there anything that you find is, is crucial to this conversation of narrowing it back to sports psychology that we haven't covered that you think is, is crucial to include in this conversation or have we covered most of it? Yeah, I think I would just reiterate that, you know, uh, sports psychology is an academic discipline. There are professionals out there that are trained in the art of mental performance and mental performance consultation. And so um, certainly from youth athletes to pro athletes, this idea of having professionals in place that help people to develop themselves mentally, um, it's really important. What I would say to sports teams is if you're not attending to the mental health or the mental performance of your athletes, like your training program is not complete. Right. Because that's a huge part of what kind of guides our behaviors and our thoughts and, and how we show up. And so um, I, I really do appreciate that within the world of sport, this conversation is expanding, um, one, to focus on the person of the athlete and two, to focus on their mental performance, but also to focus on their mental health. Um, the last point I would say there about the kind of sports psychology piece is certainly it's important to focus on the individual, but we also need to focus on the organization and creating organizations and teams and cultures that are also characterized and defined by health and wellness and that create space for athletes to be successful, but also for them to fail so that they can grow, learn, thrive and and reach um, whatever performance heights they and the team are, are striving to achieve. You've had plenty of mic drop moments here. I just want to end on this. Though. The work that you do with athletes who are young, who are famous on the other end of the spectrum is by, by nature confidential and private. But have you had moments where you've done work with an athlete and then you've seen the fruits of your labor and, and their labor come to pass and, and had some kind of triumph and you've been able to, to share in some way? in that joy because you knew how much hard work went into it without asking perhaps for a specific example, if you're not able to give one. Sure. Certainly if, if, um, because we as, as sports psychologists and sports psychology consultants are human too, right? So if we are privileged enough to be invited into someone's life, to work with them, um, certainly seeing them make progress in the ways that they want to, it's, it's, um, fulfilling. It's very fulfilling and rewarding to see someone um, engage in the work and then move forward in their lives, whether we're talking about a performance or whether we're talking about just living their life in a way that feels better to them. Like, yes, there are certainly moments of excitement for them. There are certainly moments of, like I said, it's fulfilling, but I recognize I'm not doing the work, right? I, I feel like I'm just uh, a guide or I'm just accompanying them on their walk because they've allowed me to do so. So I really try to be very conscious of, of saying clearly, it's not my work, it's their work. And if I am so privileged and given the opportunity to work with them, that's humbling. That's humbling. And I'm grateful for the opportunity that I have to work with these phenomenal individuals who also happen to be exceptional athletes. I told you Kensa was tremendous. I'm grateful to her for her time and for her passion for guiding young athletes. I found this conversation really helpful for my life and my work, and I hope you did too. She is a truly gifted speaker. You can find plenty of her talks with a quick search. Also wanna thank my good buddy, Dan Lerner, for his assistance on the episode and the introduction to Kensa. Recommend Dan's book, You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life, based on his course at NYU. As always, truly grateful to my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, and to Jason Weichel for his editing skills, and to you for listening. We'd love you to subscribe and review the podcast. I welcome all feedback on my Instagram at Chris Fowler and the website, chrisfowler.com. I'll talk to you soon.